So it's autumn, a time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you are 50 or older, you are at greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. Need more information? Talk to a doctor. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Carlo Leung. Carlo is a former accountant and founder of 12Pel. Carlo's desire for entrepreneurship allowed him to break the mold to which he refers to as the Asian American narrative, an upbringing that defines success through one's ability to thrive in white collar careers. After leaving the suit and tie behind, Carho's inspiration is to lead and encourage others to challenge the cultural norms of success. His passion for serving the AAPI community has made him a keynote speaker at corporate speaking engagements, panels, and roundtables to represent the community of young Asian American millennials and Gen Z. After founding 12PAL four years ago, the business has expanded to two retail locations and a member's house. 12PAL's quick rise in media has earned itself a title as the barbershop with the largest social media presence in the nation. The business has recently formed a media arm that is focused on leading a generational voice for men's grooming and education. As 12PAL clients and viewers like to say, a visit to 12PAL is synonymous with crying tears of joy or being blessed. Carho, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here today because I am actually a fan from the early days. And it's funny how we've got to catch, we got a chance to catch up now. Oh my gosh. I am super excited to have you on the podcast today and excited to learn about your story because I remember when we had first heard about 12Pel on TikTok or saw your guys' content, you guys were just starting out. And at that time, I knew that you guys were like blowing up because you guys were like racking up followers so fast. And you guys were just like grinding it out because you guys were like going on live every day. You guys were like posting like four videos a day. And it was like it was just moving so fast. But it's amazing to see how far you've come today. So we'll, we'll get into all of that in a little bit. But just wanted to start off by you know asking you where you were born and raised and what your upbringing was like while you were growing up. Yeah, I was actually born in Maine. So I'm a little bit of a New York City transplant, but I came here when I was six years old and I pretty much grew up in Chinatown until I bounced around the boroughs a little bit in between. And eventually when I had a chance to move out on my own, I moved back into Chinatown because it's really stomping grounds for me. And there's a level of pride and identity that I have with my community here. So there was no better place to call home than Chinatown. Wow, that's amazing. So were you always very entrepreneurial like when you were growing up did you always kind of have like this creative outlet I know that you were in accounting before so I want to know like what was your thought process like when you were growing up yeah absolutely I I always had a very entrepreneurial mindset to start when I was a kid it I think it grew out of my love and passion for anything and being able to be passionate about anything I was able to find opportunity in it 
And that opportunity eventually turned to monetization. So very early on, it was like Pokemon cards and Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And I would just pick up whatever cards they had at the card stores. Like there used to be a store on Mott Street and all the card collectors and traders would go there, but they would buy packs and dump the cards they didn't want it. So I would pick up all the ones that they didn't want, bring that to school, and then let people choose 10 cards for like a dollar. And that was like my earliest hustle ever. And I was able to buy my parents groceries with it at the time. And it really made my mom proud. And I think it was like a moment in time where I understood that I could use my sense for business to do good for my family and be able to create this happiness and like shared wealth with each other. And that that was kind of like the early days of like my hustling journey. But eventually that kind of evolved through multiple hobbies that ranged from like streetwear to high-end apparel in like high school and college. And I was always able to find an interest in something, be able to pick up on it and then develop that into a passion and eventually make it into like a side hustle. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm curious to know, like, were your parents, did they have kind of like a set plan for you? Because I just want to hear about your experience in your accounting career too. I know you had multiple jobs during your accounting career. And obviously, like, that's a very like stable job, right? I feel like a lot of Asian parents, they would they would be okay with, you know, someone in accounting or finance. Like I personally majored in finance and I was in a lot of like finance jobs. And for my parents to know that I had like a stable job, it was like, okay for them. Like they were satisfied with that. Right. And you left your accounting job to do entrepreneurship. Ultimately, did your parents like, did they have like the set plan for you? Did they want you to have or stay in accounting? And what made you ultimately decide to leave accounting? Yeah. So basically what we're describing here is what I commonly refer to as the Asian American narrative. And that essentially is, it's based on our cultural upbringing and just the ideals of our culture. Having a white collar licensed professional career is highly sought after, but praised in in Asian culture. And so if you're not doing those things, you're kind of like the black sheep at the table that not to say you're frowned upon, but it's, you don't get the praise from the family. It's not like, oh, my son is an accountant. My son's a doctor. My son's a lawyer. And, and typically, if you're any one of those things, when you meet at the dinner table and it's like a large family gathering, everybody gets a chance to have that moment to be proud. And so for me, being a licensed accountant, passing all the CPA exams was a huge milestone in my career at the time because it was a lot of my parents' aspiration for me to get a license. So my mom always said to me, I don't really care what you do as long as you get a license in something. That way you have something to fall back on and you'll always have this level of security. And she wasn't wrong. And so to be honest with you, I don't ever regret taking that route. And to be fair, I spent about seven years in the accounting industry, all the way from freshman to full time. And a lot of that time spent was building my career and getting experience in different facets of the industry from working at family office, private equity firms, to banks, to eventually big four. And I was able to get a really good idea of what that, how that industry was like, but also I gained a lot of perspective on what it's like to operate in that type of setting. And so taking a lot of that inspiration on how a larger corporation is run, I was able to translate a lot of that inspiration into my entrepreneurial energy. So now today there was many benefits that I was able to carry on in hindsight, you know, but when I was frustrated at my desk doing many hours a week, it definitely didn't seem very obvious, but I, I don't, I definitely don't regret it at all. And 
what allowed me to continue in that path was that I was making my parents happy. But there there came a point in time where I started to think to myself, like, how much longer am I able to do this for them rather than for myself? And at that moment, I always knew. And it's funny enough, actually, I realized that moment sophomore year in college. I was what I was working at Goldman Sachs at the time, and I was on the way to the ferry to take it to, to work. And I passed by the park and I saw some kids playing basketball. And in my head, I was like, wow, I haven't played basketball in like a year plus. Like what I what I would do to kill to play basketball right now. And I realized I couldn't even make that decision because I felt so guilty down inside that I would be leaving my team hanging. And it was like my level of responsibility for my work and what I was doing that made me feel like I couldn't make that decision for myself. And that's when I recognized pretty early on, like sophomore year in college, that accounting wasn't going to be my life, but it was just going to be a milestone that I had to hit. And so eventually when I made it to senior at big four and I finished passing all my CPA exams, it came, it was, it was about time. And I think that breaking out and being an entrepreneur is definitely something that I didn't reveal to my parents and something that my father actually didn't even discover until the shop was fully finished. And I had walked him into the store and it was his first time ever being in that space. But the crazier part of it was that for months it was being built under his nose because his favorite coffee shop is only about 10 stores down the block. So he would go there every day and I would be like in stealth mode and I would like duck out the store and just make sure that he didn't catch me when I'm going in and out. And like he, and it's to my surprise, he actually never caught me until the day that I walked him in there. And that moment was, was the final reveal for him. And he realized at that point that I was out here doing something else, doing something different. And I was met with a little bit of doubt, but I think that over time, he started to become really proud about what we were doing. And as he watched us grow, he grew into the idea that I was, that I could do this. And he felt confident that I knew what I was doing. And it gave me a lot of validation as we continued to push forward and grow our business. Wow. That is a crazy story. So he didn't realize the whole time. No. Wow. So, so I, my mother had some sort of idea because eventually I think about a month, a month out, I decided to tell her because I told my mom everything. And she's like, she's so understanding, even though she was still very encouraging that I consider a corporate path. (laughs) So she was like, she's always leaning on the idea that I could always do both. And I think for me, it was just like having a break and taking my own journey meant a lot because it was going to be a brand new learning curve. And I was just ready to do it like all out. Yeah. I think it's really amazing how you were able to realize early on because you said sophomore year of college, that that was when you realized like maybe accounting is not something that I would do for the rest of my life. A lot of people don't realize that until a lot later, like in their thirties or forties, right? Like forties is already like pushing it, but you were able to realize in your sophomore year of college, that's like pretty amazing. And for you to like catch that or very, very early on that allowed you the time 
while you're still young to like build this empire for yourself. And when you talked about how, you know, your parents wanted you or your mother wanted you to at least have a license in something, right? So to fall back on. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us in like the millennial generation or Gen Z generation, like we, yes, we do want to do something that we're passionate about. And then we end up having some sort of like, I don't know, some some tension with our parents because they want us to be something that we're not. But then we have to realize that it's all they know, you know, like mm-hmm. they don't know much about if they weren't entrepreneurs to begin with, or if they were entrepreneurs to begin with, they don't want us to go through the same struggle. If they weren't entrepreneurs to begin with, they don't know what that that future looks like, right? And they want us to have something stable. They want us, they, all they know is like doctor, lawyer, something to like brag to their family members mm-hmm, about, to their relatives mm-hmm. about. And it's just easy to talk about that. Oh, my son is a doctor. My son is an accountant. But when you say like, my son is an entrepreneur, it leaves a lot of like gray area. Like, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> and, there's, and then there's no good understanding of that in Asian culture. So right. a lot of the times it's like, oh, cool. So like, does he own like a cell phone store <laughs> or does he like have a, have a fruit stand? <laughs> so yeah. a lot of the times it's like, they, they don't, they don't have the concept down. And again, and I guess, like you said earlier, it could mean so many things. Yeah, absolutely. I also think it's also really awesome how you were able to transfer a lot of your skill set that you learned while you were a CPA or in accounting. And you were, I mean, obviously that's like a really, really valuable skill set to have when you're opening and running a business, you know, and if you don't have that skill set, you have to like hire a CFO, you have to hire people in accounting. And I think that's like, just like a critical part for someone to open up a business for you to actually have that accounting background, because it's so, so critical. And I want to know, like, did you have experience cutting hair before? Did you go to barber school or barber college? And like, what was that kind of building block for you? Because I, I know that you had left your accounting job. And then I think, a couple of months after, or maybe like within a year, you were able to open up 12Pel. So what was it like leading up to the opening of it? Yeah, absolutely. And I also wanted to just go back and unpack a little bit of what we said earlier, because I I really do want to make a point on how we're able to make that impact at 12Pel. So oftentimes, because of this Asian American narrative that we have around success, a lot of the young kids that come into our space are like, that see us on TikTok are like 14 to like 17 years old, as young as that. And they come in here and oftentimes I I always love to challenge them and ask them, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? Or like, what are you interested in? What do you love doing? And sometimes, you know, whether they have an idea, their hobbies almost always don't align with what they want to do. And sometimes I ask them like, why is that? And most of the time their answer is my parents want me to be an engineer or my parents want me to do this. And, and I, I think it's okay. Like, I want to make my parents happy. And so, like, I opened that floor for the conversation at that very moment. And I start to challenge them on the way that they're thinking. And if there is room for them to continue to explore rather than for them to dedicate all their time to exclusively becoming what their parents want. And I understand a lot about that. It's like our parents don't necessarily want It's not that they want to prevent us from having opportunity, but it's the opportunity that they never had. And it's extremely understandable because a lot of them get here and the job opportunities are scarce. And the fun fact is that when my dad first arrived here, he was actually a barber. So that's why he was, I think in that moment, he was like, wow, like this is so like, it's rather than taking steps forward, it seemed like we were taking steps back because at that time, 
the only job that he could get when he got to America was cutting hair because it was like, not to say low skill, but like something that you could just pick up with a pair of scissors and him getting into the game was out of necessity rather than out of passion and joy. So a lot of times our parents run businesses because they have to, not because they want to. And so for us, it's a completely different position because now we're in this situation where we create it because we want to. Yeah. And for me, I've actually, to go back to your earlier question, for me, I never actually imagined that I was going to be a barber full-time or ever I was going to be behind the chair for a full day, cutting like 16 heads a day. And if you told me that when I was still in my suit and tie, I would have said you were crazy. But I think that if you give yourself the chance to fall in love with something, that love can develop out of time. And the more time that you're willing to invest in the opportunity to grow, the more you'll fall in love with it. And I think that that's like a, I remember this being like a Japanese philosophy somewhere, but like through, like through passion comes mastery and mastery also continues to develop your passion. And like a lot of times I look at, I look at something and I give myself the chance to be, to be able to develop that interest. So when we first decided to open a barbershop slash retail space. So our original concept was actually a barbershop slash retail half streetwear and apparel. I was coming out of my hobby as selling sneakers and like being in the high-end streetwear apparel space. And I thought it would be an amazing idea to be able to combine that with a service-based business, a barbershop. And the barbershop, the, the one chair originally, that was our idea, one chair in the back, would serve as like the communal element. People can come and go from the space. And it just made a lot of sense to me. It was like, you could come in, you get fresh from head to toe. And it was kind of like a joke at first. And we were like, Hey, you know, we could call this head to toe, but we ended up deciding on the name 12 Pell. And the story of that one is not really too crazy. We just wanted it to be the location. So that way it's like, Hey, where you at? I'm at 12 Pell. So literally people would know where you're at. They don't have to be like, Oh, I'm at the sneaker shop, barber shop. There's not too much explaining to go. But anyways, before we decided on the concept, I guess the greatest challenge was finding a barber. And at that time, we sit on a very interesting block. It's called Barber's Row. There's a ton of barbers there. It's all barber shops and salons. And I was staked out with the challenge of finding us a barber that would fit our environment. So I was looking for somebody who is young, drippy, cool, and like would really fit the face, the, like the space well. And he could be like the face of the barber shop. And I stumbled upon this guy named Junior's Paradise. His name's Tim. And he was giving cuts out of his basement at the time. But he was really famous and popular within the Chinatown community as well as the Brooklyn Chinatown community. And I think one of my friends had like said, check him out. You know, you should go get a haircut. I went down there to Brooklyn. And I'll tell you, I, I barely venture out into Brooklyn. So that day when I got down there, I was really invested in doing this. <laughs> and, I, and, and I was like lost in Brooklyn and I found his place and I got a haircut from him and it was the best haircut of my life. And I was like, wow, this is so crazy. I was missing out on this for the last like 20 something years of my life. And I realized, you know what? I had to have him. And I convinced him and I was like, you know what? This is going to be dope. This is going to be the first retail slash barbershop space of its kind. And we get to pioneer something new and see how it works out. 
And Tim kind of agreed and he said, sure, you know, but he was hesitant because largely his parents disagreed with him being a barber. And so with, that was the first level of challenge that we had together. It was convincing his parents. And so he had multiple talks with his mother and he, he really respects his mom's thoughts. So one day he finally came back to me and said, you know what? I convinced my mom, let's do this. And the day before we were set to like sign him on and get everything settled down, he said, he called me and said, Carl, I can't do this. And I literally almost had a heart attack. And I was like, wow, like, why? What do you mean? He's like, I'm just having second thoughts. Like, I don't think I, I don't think this is, this is right for me. And I was like, you know what? Let's come out anyways. Let's, let's have this meeting. Right. And then let's see what we can do because you know what? I do strongly believe that you should give this a shot and there's, and you don't have to give me a commitment anymore. Just give this a shot and let's just see where it goes. It's better than just staying in the basement. Right. And so I was able to convince him for that moment, but at, in a later date, I ended up having to invite his parents, his whole family actually to dim sum. <laughs> and I did this so traditionally, like I was about to go on this date with this guy <laughs> or like I was seeking for their approval, but I went there prepared. I had Excel sheets built out. I had potential income brackets that he could hit based on how, how business would go. I created a whole plan for them. And I, and, I, and I wanted to sit down and I really wanted to pitch it out to his parents so they could understand that their son is in good hands. That's number one. And number two, we were really serious about this. And after that dim sum meeting, their parents were, you know, they were sold. And, and I can't believe like, that's what I, that's what I thought about doing the second he told me that he was worried about it. But now that I look back at it, I realized like it was a pretty slick move because that's what got me our first most popping barber. And like Tim is like a, a huge face of the brand right now. So it's like, I think about it this day, that was the best hundred dollars I ever spent. <laughs> On the dim sum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That is crazy. I mean, like a CPA would, like you had all the numbers, all the charts, all the data to back it up. Yeah. And that was what they needed. I mean, it's like, for a lot of Asian parents, it's really hard for them to see how can this be successful, right? Or like, how can I trust that my son or my daughter can be okay doing this type of job, right? Like, because it's, and that's not no fault to them because they don't, they just don't know any better, right? And I think like very similar to how, like when I quit my full-time job to do Asian Hustle Network full-time, mm -hmm. I couldn't get my parents to understand like how are you going to make money like how do you make money from a community because they don't understand like ads and sponsorships and right. all of that it just didn't make sense to them especially being like an online digital platform they in their generation they didn't have much of that they didn't have exposure to social media they didn't have exposure to online communities right so it's very hard for them to understand but wow that is a very very well invested hundred dollars that you spent on the dim sum and for them to like just change their mind based on the data that you were able to provide it it is amazing how you're able to like turn it all around yeah so like after that day i was like there was two things i i, I kind of conquered that first challenge where it was like getting their parents comfortable but it always sat in the back of my my head where it was like i could lose tim any moment if 
the business doesn't go the way that we plan it to. And that was like a level of risk that I wasn't willing to endure, especially if I was so passionate about trying to create this vision. And so I actually ended up enrolling into barber school myself with Tim. And we were going to get it licensed together. And we went through 550 hours of training. And when I was actually in barber school, that's when we made multiple pivots to our business. Because originally the concept was only a one chair space. And then we made it into a three chair space by the time I graduated. Because through school, I recognized that there was a lot of potential in this industry. One, because I realized through conversations with the students that many people didn't actually want to be there. Like I, I asked a lot of the students like, hey, like, like what made you interesting in barbering? Like what got you here? And a lot of the responses I got at the time were, I don't want to, I'm tired of working retail job. Like an office job is not for me. Or like, you know, I heard barbering can make you a lot of money. And so like, I felt like what was the driving force behind the reason for them choosing these careers was lack of better words, but like not, not so interested, right? It made me realize that if I were to put an ounce of my energy into improving and trying to be passionate about this, I could discover a lot because I'm in a space where people, not to say aren't necessarily passionate, right? But they're not really fully unlocking the full potential of the industry. And so I realized that if this is what the new talent looks like coming in to the game as being churned out, there's a lot that we could do if we're willing to focus on all the little things that people aren't. And that's when I realized, like, I had to get serious about this. There could be a lot of untapped potential here. And so, like, I started breaking everything down from, like, how the business is done from an end-to-end experience, from making the appointment to them leaving the shop and from them having an out-of-the-barbershop experience. And what I mean by that is a lot of times, traditionally, you walk into a barbershop you sit down, you wait, and you're queued up to get a haircut. And depending on how fast your shop operates or how high in demand it is, that could be 10 minutes or it could be three hours. And I remember when I was younger, I had moments where I actually sat at the barbershop for like two hours waiting to get cut. And that was just a lot of time lost and a terrible experience. And then you're also sitting in the shop sometimes where it may or may not be the environment that you enjoy waiting in. <laughs> so it's like, Sometimes I would be at the salons and there'd be a lot of banter going around, but like there'd be nobody that I could talk to or nobody that I could relate to. And so I realized that we could, we could create a better environment for booking. We could create a better environment for, and in terms of like an atmosphere where you go in, you feel welcome, you feel excited, you feel connected. The conversations are relevant. People around you understand what you're talking about and what you're interested in. And then on the third level, I, I realized that we could also improve a lot of the out of chair experience, which I feel like was severely being underutilized in the barber barbering industry. Like a lot of the times it's very transactional in these spaces. Like you see your barber next time you get a haircut and that's it. And so what we really sought to do when we first opened our concept 12 Pell is you want to solve all these problems and be able to provide added value at every level. And eventually we ended up, having a booking appointment system. So you have exact time slot. We created a shop atmosphere where everybody in there feels welcome from the moment that you step in and you're offered water to the moment that you leave and we check out and everybody says bye to you. It's like a community thing. And from an outside of the chair experience, 
we created a lot of opportunity for our clients to engage with us outside of the shop. So we threw a lot of events. We threw a lot of pop-ups in the space. We allowed other creators and people from our community to leverage our space. And the most important thing that we learned out of all that was that we were able to build communities simply out of us being the inter- interconnectors of people. So yeah. us being able to like unpack all those problems and then solve each one at a different level allowed us to create that higher level experience that we can so confidently deliver today. Yeah. You bring up a lot of great points. And I think there are a lot of, let's say, barbershops, hair salons, even nail salons, right? There's a lot of them in like Chinatown or that are run by, you know, Asian families or Asian households, they have right like a lot of banter, but you might not be able to like understand what they're saying, or you're not able to communicate with them because they're just speaking with their coworkers, right? And there's noise, right? There's noise, but they're not really connecting with the customer. But you're yeah. supposed to have the experience revolve around the customer because they're the one who, who who are like actually coming to your store and paying you for the service, right? And that service also involves your experience, right? Your experience as soon as you sit down, as soon as you step into the door, like what is that experience that the customer is going through? And I love that your barbershop, I love that 12 Pell fosters like a very big sense of community. And that's what brings people back when they feel like they found community within this space Mm -hmm. or within this shop, right? And a space for like the type of barbershop talk that people often reminisce over. I think that there's a lot of like situations where people feel very like vulnerable sitting in that chair because they're like having someone else like touch them, you know, do anything mm-hmm. like whatever to them. And so yeah. that gives them the opportunity to like open up and talk about their like deepest, darkest secrets, their most vulnerable feelings. And you're giving them that safe space to do so, which is something that's very intimate, something that's very like special. Right. And if you're able to make them feel comfortable in that moment, they will come back because maybe they don't have anyone else to talk to, right? And for Mm -hmm. someone to like actually listen to them, hear their story and feel like their voice is being heard, like that's what makes people want to come back and want to feel like they matter. Yeah, and we get that often actually. So a lot of the times people that come into their space, the first thing that they say and and they they also express through our online reviews is they, they feel welcome the moment that they walk in. And that's the energy that the whole team gives off. And like from a cultural perspective, it's funny. Like I call myself the director of culture now. I like that title more than founder. I love it. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I think that, that yeah, I think that over my last two years, I've really gotten to dive really deep into what it means to build culture in a company. And right now, the way that the whole team operates, we operate like a family and it shows. And the people that come in and interact with us see that vibe. They feel it. And it's only through that relationship that we all have with each other. That's how we're able to give this energy of the shop. And I think that that's like the most, that's our greatest moat actually. Yeah. So like, like if, if any, if anybody were to look at this business and think like, it's just a bunch of young kids in the shop and that's why they're able to build this successful social media empire. Right. It's not as easy as you think. Because to get the team together to do four to six TikToks in one day after a day of cutting hair and late night meetings and early mornings. Actually, in fact, this morning, we, I was so surprised. We had, a, we had a commercial shoot this morning for a bank. 
And last night they had changed the call time from 7.30 in the morning to 6.30. And I'd called one of the guys, Peter, and I was like, Peter, is there any chance we can get somebody down there at 6.30 instead earlier and see if we could also tidy up the shop a little bit just so we're prepared for the shoot? I wake up at 7 o'clock and I look at the cameras and everything's finished. And, and, I, and I called them and I realized looking at the cameras, almost the whole team was there. And there's some guys that live in Queens that just got home from our, our last night's class. Like we, we throw classes like barber jams with each other just so we can improve each other's skills. And some of them just got back from class literally less than like six, seven hours ago. And they're back in the shop. And this is not because we asked anybody to be there. It's because they wanted to be there. And so this, this team culture that we built is, is something that like we're very proud of, but also it's, our most challenging thing as we continue to grow because now we're looking at like, how can we keep this energy alive even as we expand to multiple locations and take on new projects? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are just one of the growing pains, right? As, as you get bigger, as you scale, as you expand, you're always going to feel like a sense of like ownership being taken away from you. Like how do I make sure that the culture stays you know, the same with all of the branches, with all of the barbershops, right? And that's always going to be every founder's problem of like growing at a really, really high speed of like, how do I make sure that, you know, the culture is, is maintained? How do I make sure like employees are aware of what the culture is? Yeah. But I think like having that foundation really, really matters. And there's a lot of companies that start without that foundation at all. Like they don't even pay attention to the culture, right? But the starting point is very, very important for you to kind of like lay that foundation so that if you expand and and when you expand, you can, you'll always tie it back to like how you guys first started. And I love that you like emphasize so much on culture because the culture is what really keeps the company together. If like employees see that there's no culture, if there's like a really unhealthy culture in the work environment, they notice that, you know, it's like, it's very, very obvious and they'll pick up on that. And that's why a lot of employees leave when they don't see a really healthy culture in the work environment. But I love that you put so much emphasis on culture and make that like a really prioritize, like really big priority. So I do want to ask, when you were starting out, was there anyone who like questioned your ambition? Like, I know it's not like a typical Asian barbershop attracting Gen Zs and millennials, especially situated in Chinatown where you would normally see like very old school barbershops, right? Was there anyone who actually tried to like challenge you and say like, I don't know if this is going to work out, especially like during the pandemic, like you guys were blowing up during the pandemic. So I'm sure there were a lot of hardships. There were a lot of challenges, but I want to know, like, what was it like for you? If anyone had ever like questioned your ambition when you were starting with 12 Paul? Yeah, all the time, actually. And as a matter of fact, to this day still, (laughs) but I think that there's just a lot more confidence in the team and leadership now that no matter what, sometimes I think what, what comes from people questioning and and looking at it from the outside and not understanding it and like what our intentions are, what we're going for is, is typical because it's really hard for them to see it in our shoes and 
feel the same way we feel about our work. So I, I kind of accept that. And a lot of times I actually take that feedback and I take it with like an open mind because I do understand that it's their perspective that creates that sort of criticism or feedback rather. And so like right now we're actually in the process of test trialing opening. So one of our, our member spaces that we're about to newly grant open this month, we've been soft opening it for the last two weeks is a membership space that I want to build for our community. And that came in line right around the COVID challenges actually. And so that that's like a very interesting story because during that time, it within a year and a half, I went from deciding whether or not we could continue to keep our doors open to opening two locations in the same year. And it, and it's so insane. Well, same year and a half, almost two years now, time flies. So it's like, I lose track, but it's, it's about two years now to be accurate. And, and like that journey was just so insane. Like the highs were highs and the lows were the lowest of lows. And I was dealing a lot with like family. My dad wasn't doing so well last year, health wise. And it was just a lot of challenges that we're going through. And I think that people looking at it from the outside never really understand what's going on in the inside. And I think that all, all I have to say about that, and as an entrepreneur, I feel like you just have to pivot and you just have to be, not to say stoic about it, but you have to, it's not unbothered, but you have to make sure that you're maintaining and doing everything you have to, to move forward, because that's all we can do. So when I was faced in the moment of almost deciding to close a shop during COVID, I thought to myself, would I regret it? And at the time I was under a lot of pressure because I'm an only child and I support my family. So I had my space, like my, my place, my apartment, I had my parents' apartment. I had to pay double rent. I also could pay for the store's rent. And at some point in time, cash flow was going to run really low where I couldn't hold it down unless I had to ask for help. And to me, I felt like I, I gave myself a point in time. I said, hey, if we don't reopen by September, I might really have to consider it. And fortunately, love phase two came in around July and we were able to open before July 4th. Yeah, so that was, we, we dodged a boat there because I think that that was kind of like where I was like, if I'll, I'll walk the runway as long as I can. And if it gets to a point where I can't carry it anymore, I just can't do it anymore. And we we got back into business. We we operated for two months and then we realized we were in, in a very bad position because number one, because of how, how sensitive our community is with COVID, a lot of people were still afraid to come back. And largely a lot of our community also lives at home with their parents and elderly. So out of safety reasons, people were reluctant to come back into the space because it's such a high traffic space. And so at the time I would, I thought about it and I was like, what can we do? Like now that I got past the first hurdle, we can be open now, but now we didn't have business. There were days, literally we had less than four clients in the store and it was, it was devastating. And it wasn't, that didn't only exist just for us. That was every other shop on the block. And so at that time I could turn, I turned to the only thing that I knew that would be 
our best shot of getting out of this alive. And that was social media. And so we threw, we put together a little campaign on, on what it's like to come back to our store. And we did this whole airlines video and we like, it was like a mock-up of like, like, yo, please fasten your seatbelts. And like when there's turbulence. Yeah. (laughs) So we did this whole mock-up version and we did it like in the barbershop and we just showed what we were doing for precautionary reasons and everything. But that was our first viral video. And that got us a lot of praise, even though it didn't get us a lot of clients. But I said, Hey, that's, that's a start. Like we're getting attention now. Let's see how we can leverage this to build more awareness that we're, that, you know, Chinatown's suffering, not just our shop, but Chinatown suffering. And so we went on to doing another video and that was for July 4th. And we ended up deciding to host a free barbecue on the block, which was probably completely illegal. But at that time, the block was dead anyways. So I was like, you know what? What's the worst that can happen? The cops show up. They tell us to pack up our stuff. We go home. <laughs> so we were like, you know what? Let's just do it. And we got a, we got one of our friends who's a DJ to come out. And I hit up Wilson Tang, who, who has a dim sum restaurant right around the block. And I said, can I use that corner of your space? And we set up and we had a DJ going on. We had some hot dogs grilling and we were giving out free food to, to the community. But the night before that, we made a video and said, Hey, pull up to this free barbecue, spend $45 in Chinatown anywhere, and we'll give you a free haircut. Because at that point, we had nothing to lose. And and we just wanted to bring more awareness to the fact that everybody was hurting. And so like throwing this free barbecue and like we made that video, we woke up the next morning and it was completely viral. We had like over like three, 400 shares in one night. And people pulled up to Chinatown. They, they 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 purchased stuff. They brought their receipts to the store. We scheduled times with them to get a free haircut. And that was our second viral video. And at that point, I was like, wow, we're actually able to make an impact here. Because even if they weren't spending the money with us, we got them to come back to Chinatown to break that stigma of COVID being so rampant in our community. So it's like we got everybody to dip their toes back into Chinatown now, finally. And that was like our, our greatest win for that summer. But at that point, I realized we had to double down on social media. And we were super scrappy at the time. We were working out of our store. We just set up a table literally on the street, like we were like we did like we did the roadside dining, like everyone else did. But we had our it was our office table and we had our laptops propped up there every day, just trying to bang out content. And it was around November when it got colder, when I realized we had to keep going and, and it was too cold for us to sit outside anymore. And we doubled down and found ourselves a space and we ended up creating content out of there. So it was a lot of pivots along the way that got us to where we are. A lot of doubts at every single, at every single phase, because it's just so hard to figure out why and what we're doing. But I think that, at the time, a lot of the stuff made sense because the challenges for us wasn't just business challenges, right? It was a challenge that we were facing for our whole community. So from the outside looking in, I think even when we threw the barbecue, they were like, what are you doing? Like, why don't you guys focus on your business and, and cut hair and like get your clients back in, reach out to your clients. It didn't seem like the most immediate, obvious choice for people to be like, these guys are just messing around. They're throwing a barbecue and they're just like having fun during this time. And we actually got backlash for it too. 
some people were like, hey, that's so irresponsible for you guys to get people together during this time and, and ask for people to come out, especially when COVID's going around. And we were in phase two. So I guess like a lot of people were very, it was a very sensitive topic in our community, but we, we still chose to push forward because what else were we supposed to do? Sit there and wait. And so a lot of the times it's like, when we make these decisions, we always look at the greater good and being able to like, what is, what is the potential outcome and what is the potential greater good? And is it worth the risk? So yeah, if the cops shut us down, yeah, we get a ticket, you know, what's the worst that could happen? We get a few disapprovals here and there, but overall we brought over 400 shares to let people know that Chinatown is hurting. And I think that was well worth it. Wow. I love that so much. I think during COVID and during the pandemic, you're always going to get backlash. And at that time, emotions were so high. You know, everyone yeah. was like super sensitive about everything. Like if you got more than 10 people together, people are going to be like, why are you bringing people together? Yeah. And exactly. then if you don't bring people together, you know, businesses are struggling. Yeah. And no one was really doing anything about it. At least like the mom and pop shops, they didn't know what to do. Right. right. They didn't have the social media presence to to rally people together to you know, create this sort of impact and, you know, disperse this news at such a, you know, high speed to like social media and use social media as a platform to like spread the word. Right. And I love that you were not only thinking about your own business, which I feel like a lot of businesses or business owners at that time when they're like stressed out, they can't make payroll, they can't, you know, um, pay their investors, they can't do all these things they're just going to think about how to survive, right? They're just mm -hmm. going to think about their own business. But you were able to think outside the box, like how can we revive Chinatown and keep Chinatown afloat during this time and encourage people to spend money at other businesses so that you can bring people back to your own business. And yes. I think that's such a commendable thing to do. And I know that you were, you guys were featured in the Chinese newspaper for your effort to bring business back to Chinatown. Yes, yes, yes. That <laughs> was actually... That was our first press feature. Uh -huh. And I think that we were so ecstatic at that time because it meant the whole world to us. It was finally, and, and I think it's funny because to Chinese parents, if you're in Forbes, you're in like CNBC, you're in Fox 5, they'll be like, okay, cool. You're in the news. You're in a, Chinese, you make a newspaper, Chinese newspaper. It's like a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> they'll you frame it, it on the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, oh so that was like the most impressive milestone for a lot of our team, because when their parents saw it or their aunts or whoever saw it, it gave ultimate validation that we were doing something right. And it was just so crazy to see, because like, I think immediately following that publication, we actually had a lot of the older generation that walked past our store and said, that's the store that we read about. And we actually even had two two older gentlemen or I think in the seventies like and eighties that came in to get a haircut. And they were like, we read your story. We love what we're doing for the community and we're here to support you. And that was like the craziest level of validation that we ever got from the generation above us, which we thought we could never convince. Yeah. Yeah. Cause your demographic is like Gen Z millennial. I, when I saw that on ABC, like when, you guys talked about how those two older gentlemen came in. I was just like, oh my gosh, that pulled on my heartstrings so much. Because that's yeah. like, you, it, you're, it's true. Like, I don't like, because your demographic is Gen Z and millennial, it's like, it's hard to break into that older generation 
Yeah. Because they or, saw it in the Chinese newspaper. Or at least get them to understand what we're doing. Yeah. And so like, I think from the level of understanding, it's hard because like you were saying earlier, it's like, we don't have the same level of conversations. We don't have the same level of interest. We grow up with such a large generational gap, even more so because of technology now. So it's like for me to stay tapped in with my mom and like, because I'm, I'm such like, I'm always busy and I'm such an entrepreneur. I'm always on to the next thing. Me finding time for her to explain her all these things is a little bit harder. And, and I, and I just actually, I, I thought of a solution for that when I was like, let me just open an Instagram account for her and have her follow me <laughs> and she could see all the ridiculous things I'm doing live. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we are nearing the end of the podcast, Carho, and I just have a couple of last questions for you, but I- I do want to know, since, you know, starting your TikTok, which I'm sure has just turned your life around, you know, it's gotten you so much business at 12 Pell. How have you seen your life change since starting 12 Pell, since, you know, going viral on TikTok, having so many new customers, repeating customers, and just having them have the safe space to like share their stories with you? How have you seen yourself and your life change personally? Oh, tremendously. I think that it really is true what they say when you grow too fast, you end up in this race trying to catch up. And I think that our success by no means was overnight. It was definitely something that we worked through a two-year period, just figuring out every day. And to this day, we still are, but we're much better at thinking on our feet and being fast about what we're doing. And more recently, I've just become a lot more intentional about the things that I do. And it's it's very important to stay mindful because now that we have such a big voice, now that we create such a representation for the general Gen Z and millennial Asian American kids, you know, looking up to us, there's a lot of power there. And I think that uh, how we communicate that with our audience and how we kind of, the relationships that we build out of that space have to be just that much more intentional and meaningful. And so oftentimes I find myself reflecting a lot more now. So I take a lot of time, like right, right when I wake up in the morning, I get up out of bed and first thing that I automatically gravitate to that it's, it's a habit that I've recently tried to break or I'm still breaking is, you know, I get on my phone, but I only check the messages for about five minutes and I go on to my morning routine where I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting, like I'm cleaning up and I'm doing a lot of mental reflection. And I think that has brought about, brought about a lot of change for myself because I'm just more conscious about the things that we're doing. So whether it's like right now, we're currently dealing with like an over demand issue. So there's so much demand right now, but I have to be very intentional about how we onboard talent. And if the talent is right for our team. And so it's not about onboarding people just because we have the demand and we can, you know, make the bottom line, make more sense. Now it's like, does this make sense for our culture? Does this make sense for our community? And I think that through that, I think that I've matured a lot in my mindset and that's like a a part of this process that I enjoy a lot. So now I'm able to look at things very differently and through multiple perspectives. So in some sense, I think that it makes me really excited. I mean, even having this opportunity today to share my story with all the viewers from the Asian Hustle Network podcast, I think is an amazing thing because I think had I had we done this story 
maybe a year ago or two years ago, I think it would have been very different. But now I'm able to speak much better on it because I've had that time to really reflect on our journey and be conscious about what we're doing. Yeah, I love that. I love the growth mindset. So we have one last question for you, Carho. Okay. And that is, what future plans do you have for yourself and 12Pel, let's say in the next like five years, five to 10 years? Yeah. So in the next, well, actually in the next two to three years, we hope to own all the Gen Z and millennial voice for men's grooming and personal care. I think that there is a big opportunity in that space because a lot of the companies that used to do it are not so much focused directly on it anymore. A lot of companies and brands have become much more on the lifestyle side. And so there's no real authoritative voice that owns that space as much as it used to be anymore. And we're looking at new media in a very different way now. You're looking at short format content being at the top of the winning list. And we're kind of spearheading that for the barbering industry. So right now, because we are in this position to be able to make this level of impact, we want to keep going. And more recently, we've, we've developed our media arm of our company. And that's, that's kind of like our end goal in, in the next two, three years, really capture, be able to create solutions for everybody around the world. Because now it's like much larger than our community in Chinatown, much larger than United States. We have an audience all over the world. Like we have stylists from Germany and like other academies messaging us and saying, wow, we really love this content you're putting out. And a lot of it is the content that we put together because of our energy and, and, and how we treat this space. So we want to keep that energy level super high. We intend to continue to grow the team on the media side and Something that what we're doing really special for our community is we're continually building out that member space. And so I mentioned earlier, we have this membership barbershop that serves mostly the, the younger generation that's aspiring to do something creative or existing entrepreneurs within our community. And so the idea is that I took a lot of inspiration from Soho House being a member for like the last couple of years, but I realized creating a space where a lot of people who have that right energy come together can create a lot of value. And so the idea is rather than you watching us grow for, you know, going on or like for the last four years, here's your opportunity to grow with us. So you can, and the way that you can apply for membership is you have to have two barbers recommend you and two existing members recommend you. And then you, you're able to apply and then tap into our network. And the idea there is we want to create shared resources for our community, for people who are passionate about going and making change or, or doing something that they are really passionate about themselves. So through this membership system, my idea is to build this high value community that will continue to drive more change in Chinatown. And through that network, we're able to leverage resources together so that we can build these things, whether it be a shared photographer or shared events coordinator or something like that, or maybe you might even be able to meet your next business partner in our space. The whole idea is having that physical location where everybody can get together. So when Asian Hustle Network wants to throw their next meetup in New York City, you already know where we're going. <laughs> Love it. Yes. We can't wait for all of those exciting news to happen. And as you guys continue to expand and grow globally, because I mean, you guys are, your target audience is like already getting there globally or already there, you know, and I think that 
there's no doubt in my mind that you guys are definitely gonna gonna accomplish all of those goals. So very excited for all of those future ideas and plans for for you and 12 Pell. So Carho, where can our listeners find out more about you and 12 Pell online? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us on Instagram at 12pel, 12pell, as well as TikTok. We're trying to grow our presence on YouTube, but we just haven't figured out long format content to the degree that we want to produce it at, but you know, coming soon. And my personal handle is FatboyK, F-A-T-B-O-Y-K. Don't ask me why. <laughs> it's been a name that I stuck with okay. for the last <laughs> so many years of my life. But you can find me on Instagram if you have any questions or if you'd like to reach out and ask me any questions. Awesome. We'll leave all of that in the show notes. Carho, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It was amazing having you on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was really exciting sharing the story. Of course. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.